Welcome to the Lawn and Garden Podcast with UW Extension Specialist Jeff Edwards and gardening enthusiast Jerry Urshabek. Presented by UW Extension and originally aired on KGOS and KERM in Torrington. All right, good morning. This is Jeff Edwards. This is the KGOS KERM Lawn and Garden Program. And it's going to be one of those days. <laughs> I can I can feel it in the air. Uh, quick introductions here. Uh, we have uh, Jerry Urshbeck. Hello, Jerry. It's good to be back. Good morning. Nice to have you back. I'm, I'm glad you're here today. And uh, also online with us today, we have Lucinda Mays. She is the campus horticulturist for Shadron State College. And um, she says that she is the all-purpose gardener. So uh, good morning, Lucinda. How are you? Good morning. You're fine. Good, and we are glad to have you here, and uh, we are going to um, take a break and listen to our sponsors, and we'll be right back and get to our program. We'll get back to Jeff and his guests in just a moment. You are listening to the Lawn and Garden Podcast, presented by UW Extension, extending the land-grant mission across the state of Wyoming with a wide variety of educational programs and services. Visit us at www.uwyo.edu slash uwe or search UW Extension at the main uwyo.edu page. There you can look up the location of your county office, browse our many programs, and access tons of UW Extension publications to help not only your gardening pursuits, but also economic information, rangeland management tips, and so much more. Check it out today. Now, back to the Lawn and Garden Podcast with Jeff Edwards. Okay, we're back. This is Jeff Edwards. This is the University of Wyoming KGOS KERM Lawn and Garden Program. And um, we <laughs> it's been a day. I apologize for being nearly late this morning. I, you know, it's a Labor Day weekend. It's a, it's a big, busy weekend. And um, uh, I have projects. So I thought if I stopped at the hardware store this morning, I'd be able to, um, I'd be able to uh, take care of some things and be able to. Uh, that's that's considered bundling, isn't it? It is bundling. Yes, bundling. yes. And so um, uh, I uh, I ran into a little bit of a problem getting some supplies and and. Uh, Looked at the clock and I thought, oh, I got to get to the radio station. And I understand you had some pretty good programs while I was gone. We talked to Dick Young about everything about apples. Man is amazingly uh, knowledgeable about apples. He said, you know, to tell how you know when an apple is ready to pick. You reach up, you do a, a, a half or a quarter turn on the apple, and if it just comes off, it is ready. Also, the color and, of course, the taste. Okay. Then we had Tom McCurry on. He's just an overall really good gardener and master gardener, and uh, he talked about some of his experiences over at the University of Wyoming. And uh, Yeah, we had, we had a really nice program. Well, I think we've got them all recorded, and uh, we'll get them loaded up in the podcast. Oh, so for podcasting, I've, yeah. I'll have to review those anyway. Let's get to our other guest, Lucinda. I'm glad you made it back. I, I apologize yes, if it, I found my way. I apologize <laughs> if it was me hanging up on you. <laughs> Heck of a thing, Jeff. I don't know how it happened. Doesn't matter. Okay, so um, uh, you know, we inter- introduced you as the campus horticulturist for Shadron State College, and uh, we are so glad that you could be with us today. Um, always enjoy chatting with you and um, uh, working with you. 
And uh, you had mentioned that you wanted to talk about um, uh, the possibility of creating flower beds, uh, or, or this is part of the work that you do, creating flower beds where you have sequential blooming, so things happening all the time. And if you'd like to launch into that, that would be awesome. Well, sure. Uh, one of the things that folks are really interested in when they come and visit our campus, if they're gardeners and like to know about uh, what we're doing here, uh, we spend an awful lot of time and care thinking about when we want our campus to have peaks of bloom, or maybe not just bloom, but um, the, the best look for whatever the season is. And so I kind of think of that as event-based horticulture. You know, we're a college campus, so we have homecoming, and we have graduation day, and we have uh, the first day of classes is always uh, a great big time for us on campus. And so part of what we do to make our campus look as welcoming as it can look is to make sure that we have things that are plants that are at their peak at specific times of year. Of course, we want it looking good year-round. I'll bet that's a big job, Lucinda. That's a, there's a lot of planning that goes into that, isn't it? Oh, you know, there is a lot of planning. It's actually the fun part of it. But that whole, that whole idea of phenology, of natural events that happen cyclically or seasonally, we know what they are without a whole lot of training. If you think about it, we know that our daffodils are going to bloom in the spring. And we know that moms uh, can bloom in the summer or the fall. So we already have a lot of that information in our minds. We just have to kind of organizing it, organize it. And so it's great. Uh, to make that happen. Right now, we're working towards um, uh, homecoming, which will happen in late September and early October every year. So that's kind of one of the easy ones. We don't usually have a hard frost before then, so we have a lot of good fall color from our trees and shrubs. That's fantastic. So um, when you're doing this sequential planting and planning, are, are you... Uh, do you change things out in, in beds, or do you have things in beds that are specific for a particular event that you're planning for? Well, that's a good question, and it really does depend on what the event is, where it is, and uh, if it's a one-time uh, thing that's happening or if it's something that happens year after year. Rather than thinking about having a particular bed ready, what I like to do is, is think of the whole area. So you might take a couple of acres or half an acre uh, in sight, or you could think about it even on the same scale as your, uh, your residential uh, lawn and garden. So same kind of thing. What I would look for in October, for example, uh, near the football stadium, I have a border that everyone has to drive past on their way to get to the football stadium, and everything in there I selected uh, to have something of interest um, in in that time of year, again, late September and early October. So we have um, uh, shrubs that are in full color, trees that are either evergreens or in color, uh, you know, things like sumac that have a good color. We've selected some lilacs that have a good fall color, like the, the Miss Kim lilac always colors up really well for us. So that's one way that we do it. Um, uh, in the springtime at graduation time, that's always early in May. So then we have, that's a tricky time to have sure. colors. But, but there are some reliable things that you can count on. Uh, crab apples, five years out of six, are in bloom during graduation. 
It's that sixth year that we have to be worried about, right? Oh, yeah. Well, then you just close your eyes and wait till next year. But, but I know that we'll have a couple of buildings that are going to be heavily involved with the graduation ceremonies. And so crab apples are planted more in those areas than in others because I need that reliable spring color. Yeah. Do, do you have any... Um, any uh, publications or guidelines that folks could access on on sequential planting? Oh, you know, nothing that we've created here, although um, I'm I'm trying to think if there's something that I could could point people toward. It's just just that every place is so specific. Right. The The best advice, and here's something that I did when we first moved here, uh, to western Nebraska, um, grew up in Nebraska, but I had spent the 20 and 30 years before that in the south, and so I'd forgotten everything I knew about when things bloomed here. Um, I, I photograph things all year long, and they're not just the plants that I grow. They're what looks good out in the landscape. You know, if I can find something that looks good around here in the landscape in February or March, I know I've got a good plant. Yeah, yeah, that's... And, that's an interesting way to do that. Just kind of build a photo log of things that you see and what you might like and uh, uh, put that together for your own use. Well, and what I find is things will bloom in combination, but they may not always bloom on the same, like they may not always be in bloom the first week of April. Sure. They might be in, in bloom uh, the first week, the last week of March or the third week of April. It just kind of depends on all of the different things that are happening climate-wise. So, sure. So getting that, um, I should probably make a list of what blooms when. <laughs> <laughs> so, Lucinda, at the University of Wyoming, uh, they generally have, and they've concreted in a planter, and it's UW, and they put in uh, ornamental cabbages and marigolds, and those are always you know, right there for the first football games, for the for that early early frost. Laramie typically frosts quickly. The end of July. <laughs> <laughs> and so anytime you, you get that frost, those ornamental cabbages really just brighten up their colors. And, of course, marigolds are really strong. Uh, do you have a, a, a bunch of greenhouses then to pick and choose your flowers and shrubs? to put back in in case something goes bad? Oh, from your mouth to God's ears. No, I do not. (laughs) Dang it. (laughs) But what what we do have, uh, what we do have is the, uh, there's so many things out on the market now, and so uh, local and area suppliers can get me what I need. Uh, I'll give you an example. Everybody knows petunias are... um, a a nice summer annual for some color and that color kind of deepens as the nights get cooler but there the florida breeders have come up with a series called uh, vista and the one that is vista bubblegum pink i've never seen a petunia perform like this plant it spreads but it also gets high and so and you don't have to deadhead it it um it has i would say uh, by this time of the year, they're two and a half, three feet across and about 16 inches tall, and you can't see any leaves because it's blooming so heavily. Wow, and what was that called again? 
The series is called Vista. Okay. It comes in, se- it comes in several colors. Most of the colors are more of a spreading petunia, kind of like the wave petunia is. But Vista bubblegum pink is more erect and bushy. Hmm. Interesting. Oh, it's a top. I, it's a top-notch petunia. I don't get. I don't have any problems with it, and for some reason, knock on wood, the deer aren't interested in it. (laughs) They can be a problem, can't they? (laughs) Oh, they really are, but that's one of the plants that I rely on when I need summer color in a flower bed. And petunias in the flowering annual plant world are on the heavy feeding side, so uh, we use a little fertilizer with it, and we always add compost um, every time before we plant petunias anywhere on campus. Our soils or alkaline here. Okay. And, uh, yep. And not and not so hot. What's the pH in the area where you, your gardeners are? Uh, so it it varies. Um, it's anywhere from seven and a half to closer to nine. Well, I would kill for seven and a half, but I wouldn't <laughs> want nine. <laughs> yeah, there there are some struggles. It just kind of depends on on where you're at and what you're trying to grow and. And uh, so we were constantly talking about uh, the releasing iron into the soil, methods to do that. Uh, One of the things that I have uh, a question on, and we get this all the time, if you're you're managing these, uh, a number of of beds for a variety of different things, what do you do for weed control? Oh, good, good question. The... um, uh, the weed control really depends on where the beds are that we're working on. On the interior of campus, where we don't have a lot of wind coming off the rough ground uh, that surrounds us, because we're right in the middle of the Pine Ridge, so it's pastures and fields. Um, in the interior of campus, we really don't have much for weeds. Um, we use an awful lot of wood mulch. Okay. So you're mulching and you're uh, you're basically preventing sunlight from really reaching the soil and preventing those weeds from germinating. That's exactly right. The other thing that we do is we water with drip irrigation or sometimes soaker hose, but that's also under the mulch. Okay. And so any weed seeds that blow in are landing on dry mulch, and we're we're breezy and and we have dry air here, so <clears throat> the seed germination of weeds that blows in, uh, we don't have near as much problem with that. So if we're on the interior of campus, I use mulch. I don't use overhead watering that would wet the top of the mulch, and those two things help us a lot. Mm-hmm. Um, we are getting, we're very good, I think, at, at recognizing which weed we have now. <laughs> <laughs> and what I've, what I've noticed in the last week or so uh, because our day length is changing, the weeds have shifted into high gear as far as seed production. And we can have uh, lamb's quarter or pigweeds that are only an inch tall and be just a seed head and one leaf. <laughs> so, or, or, yeah. <laughs> yeah. And yeah. even the flowers are starting to try to kick that into yeah. gear as well. Yeah. So. Yep. It's, that's true, too. We're having the exact same thing happen. And, and sometimes one, if you're in a hurry and you've got a patch of weeds uh, starting to flower and set seeds, we might get in there and knock them back just to get that seed out so that we don't have the seed bank in the soil, but that's, that's rarely an effective way to do it. Yeah. <laughs> because then they just side branch and 
and uh, send up more seed too. So we always pay when we try and take a shortcut. Right. I, I think Diane and I's tactic right now is pull as many of them as we possibly can and re- eliminate them from the landscape so that we don't have that seed uh, uh, bank renewed. <laughs> as well, like just like with hollyhocks. You want to you want to <laughs> <laughs> yeah. get that seed pot off of there. There's plenty of seed as it is. Uh, so the seed bank is huge, and one of the best tools we have for hand weeding, especially this time of year, the things going to seed. We use tarps uh, or old bed sheet is what I have at home that I use for my tarp at home. But as I pull that weed, it goes onto the tarp, so it never I never oh. throw them down on the ground. Yeah, that's the same thing with us. We usually um, put them in a wheelbarrow, move them off to a place where we aren't going to uh, have to deal with them, and and uh, just remove them entirely from our landscape. Yeah. Now, it's all seasonal, but this time of year, moving those things out is probably the best thing we can do so that over time we have fewer and fewer weeds sprouting. We do have a different kind of managing weeds challenge on the edges of our campus. Our campus, as I said, is in the Pine Ridge, so we have um, hills, if you will. They kind of look like foothills. Sure. Um, and uh, with pines and choke cherry is part of the native plant community here, and then lots of the warm season grasses. Uh, but there's also agriculture land surrounding us, and so we have all of the the weeds that come off endeavors like that, too. So between the tumbleweeds and the windmill grass blowing in and uh, name name whatever weed you want, I've had good luck, again, mulching heavily. Yeah. But, it, but in those exterior, in those outlying areas, for example, we're putting in some tree rows mark the perimeter of campus um in the tree rows i'll put down landscape fabric which i never use in the inside of campus because it puts a barrier between uh the mulch breaking down and the soil below sure just just to get a handle just to get a handle on the smooth brome Mm -hmm. yeah that's Um, it, it depends on where you're at i think on as far as your weed control tactics uh whether it's a a mulch or a a plastic uh, fabric or those types of things so yep. jerry what are are you still weed whacking your weeds or are you hand pulling them we're still weed whacking and and uh <clears throat> lawn mowing <laughs> using <laughs> using the lawnmower in the garden uh we were weed whacking but i think now the the uh the idea is just to keep them from forming that seed head and uh we'll deal with the plant later you know and you know i i will recreational till uh one more time at least uh to just to put the garden to bed so sure that's kind of what we're we're at as as far as weeds now and so uh it, it's just like that zucchini you look at that plant and there's maybe a six inch zucchini and you look at it the next day, and it's heck. It's it's fourteen, sixteen inches long, twenty four inches. Yeah, <laughs> big old boat. <laughs> Same thing with weeds. You go, well, I'll let that weed go for a, a day or two, and now it's, it's springing up there two foot. Yeah, uh, I hate to cut us off. It's time to take a little bit of a break here, and we'll be back in a few minutes. Did you know there are a number of online educational opportunities available at the UW Extension website? 
and those offerings will continue to grow over the next year. We offer an animal science course for 4-H students, as well as training on community development topics. Just go to uwyo.edu and search for UW Extension. You can access the Extension online course catalog from the main page. While you're there, check out our Facebook feed or watch our extensive collection of From the Ground Up videos to get great gardening tips. Let's get back to the podcast. All right, we are back. This is Jeff Edwards, Jerry Urshabek, and Lucinda Mays. This is the KGOS KERM Lawn and Garden Show. And uh, before we move on to, I know Jerry has a question for Lucinda. I uh, wanted okay. to comment that uh, last week I, I was on a really nice vacation. And uh, we ended up in Victoria, British Columbia. And um, ta- talk about a, a really interesting place and uh, very cool gardens. There's just plants planted everywhere. And uh, we wandered by the Parliament Building and the Empress Hotel. And, and uh, it's just a beautiful location. We didn't have enough time to go to the Bouchard Gardens, but uh, uh, it's just a beautiful place. Anytime you're in an area where there's annual rainfall exceeding seven inches, I think you're probably going to see a lot of plants. Well, actually, where, where things weren't being watered in Victoria, it was really, really dry. Uh, Victoria is one of the places that gets a little less rainfall than most of what we think of British Columbia and Washington and those types of places. But um, uh, temperate rainforest it is not, but still they have beautiful gardens up there. I'm, I'm sure you've been there, Lucinda. Is that uh, Have you been that direction? I have. I've seen Bouchard. I've seen just regular old backyard gardening up there, and it's a different animal than we can do here in the high plains, isn't it? Oh, it definitely is. I, I don't think the wind blows. They don't have to worry about that type of stuff there. <laughs> no, it, it was it was just fantastic to see all those different types of things, and, and everything was in bloom, so uh, uh, it was it was really nice to see that. So, what you, a great time to go. It's good to get out and see what other people are growing and kind of see if there's some ideas that we can uh, take from their place to our place. It may not be an exact plan, but maybe uh, a design component or something that will remind us of those wonderful visits we've had to different gardens. Yeah, and I, I, we're, we were visiting some more uh, city places recently, and... Uh, um, seeing a lot of uh, green spaces incorporated into apartments, uh, which is an interesting concept. Yeah, up high, up on the balconies, up on their roofs, those types of things. Jerry's Jerry's giving me hand signals, so uh, he he can talk, but he didn't want to interrupt me. That was a question. Was it like on the on the roofs or yeah yeah yeah? And those are so nice. You know, I know that there's. Uh, some people that do pigeons on the roof, uh, they, but a lot of the terraced gardens uh, on a rooftop, what a nice little escape. Yeah, it's, a, it's an interesting uh, design feature and a, and a nice pleasing one as well for the folks that are living there. The only thing, you got to have to have a good roof. <laughs> Keep that water off the roof, let it come down. Yeah, people don't realize how heavy soil and water are. Oh, absolutely. So there's some there's some interesting design components that have to go in. Well, it's those like when we used to have all those water beds. You know, you move into an apartment and you put up a water bed and the, the floor starts to sag. <laughs> so those those uh those beds, those planter beds, 
really need to be supported. Yeah, they do. Uh, you had a you yeah. had a question for Lucinda. Let's go ahead. And speaking go that way. of Lucinda, speaking of of those planters, uh, I know you said you put mulch over the top of it, but how do you how do you um, manage the soils? Are do you pull that? mulch off and then replace your soils once in a while? Do you just keep your same soils and amend them? Good questions and really important questions too because if you don't mess around and improve the soil continually, um, I, I think that the plants in those enclosed beds tend to dwindle and not do well year after year. So what we do, um, for example, I'll just take our petunia bed. We'll pull the petunias after their uh, they're done, and we leave pine straw mulch, pine needle mulch down in place just to cover the location. Uh, to me, that's a decorative mulch that's easy to manage in the landscape. Come spring, we'll pull that pine straw, pine needles back out of harm's way. We'll throw some sifted compost down onto the planting bed, and we'll run uh, uh, either a spading fork or a tiller through it, depending on the size of the bed. Can I interrupt a moment? Can yeah. I? Uh, um, so you said sifted compost. How do you sift your compost? Oh, we do not sift it. We are lucky. We <laughs> it comes to us sifted. Okay. Our, solid, <laughs> our solid waste operation here in town, uh, out at the dump, has a composting operation where they take the grass clippings and the leaves that are collected in the dumpsters and then uh, row it out, and uh, they do a beautiful job of, of breaking down um, and tilling through that uh, uh, material until it is compost. And then they have a sister hooked up to a, a some kind of a rig. Uh, it's just screen, okay. a wood frame screen, and they and they shake it back and forth and they sift it, and that gets all the junk out that shouldn't be there that people tend to throw into those dumpsters like old tennis shoes and stuff. <laughs> or glass or yeah. whatever. You bet. Yeah. Yeah. Okay. So, yeah. Sorry to interrupt, but I thought it would be interesting to find out if you sifted it, because because on on my person, uh, I'm a passive composter. Uh, I I know I need to be more aggressive. I should add some water. I should stir it up occasionally, more often than I do. But then when I do mm-hmm. go to use my compost, I have big chunks in it, uh, big sticks. Let's put it that way, larger sticks, uh, and. Um, so as we're spreading it out, our sifting method is to scoop those pieces aside and then throw them back into the compost. You might use a rake. <laughs> well, yes, that, yeah, I, I do. <laughs> my, that's my sifter. That's the sifter. <laughs> Diane and I sifter. Yeah. Uh, sorry. So that's a very, very good method. It's a good way to do it, and it's not a bad thing to have big sticks in your compost operation because then you get air pockets around those sticks, and that kind of helps keep the the compost from uh, getting matted down and not getting the oxygen it needs to break down beautifully. Sure. So we, like I said, I'm a passive composter, and and it takes several years for our compost piles to be actually ready, <laughs> like like seven, like seven. <laughs> I occasionally 
here comes that tiller again. <laughs> I occasionally run my tiller up into my compost pile and and therefore you know give it a little spin. So, I, I hate to use a pitchfork and you know, turn it. So so recreational rototilling of your compost pile is highly encouraged. Highly encouraged. Not your soil. <laughs> <laughs> Is your husband a recreational rototiller? Oh, he is, and he likes everything to look fluffy. <laughs> <laughs> now, now, there's been some people telling me that there is such a thing called rototiller bottom. It's kind of like plowshare bottom, where the plow runs over the same depth year after year after year, and then just below that, there's this hard compact layer. Well, I was told... That we do the same thing with the rototiller. The rototiller spins round and round. It doesn't matter which way that blade is going, but it's a vibrational compacting of that area right below the six to eight inches, nine inches of of rototilling. Tiller only goes so deep. Only so deep, and then after that, it vibrates. And so um, I've done just a little bit of uh, shanking. And pulling that up, I don't know that it did any good or not, but hey, <laughs> at least I tried it, and I'm like going, well, okay, that's enough of that stuff. Yeah, yeah. So, uh, Lucinda, I derailed your conversation about what you do to amend your soil. So, oh, oh. <laughs> so, so please, kind of, and that's that's just part of our show. We get off on tangents all the time, so I'm I'm just trying to bring us back to uh, you and your direction that you were going. Well, I just want to, do want to encourage any time you get a chance to enrich soils. And uh, we like the vegetable garden here, too. But today, talking about shrubs and, and uh, flowers and, and beds and things, uh, it's a constant uh, process of adding and enriching the soil. I have a mixed shrub border here on campus that's shrubs and perennials. Every now and then, we have to lift something out, either because it's gotten... Uh, too rampant a grower and we need to thin it out or maybe somebody rode a bicycle across it and now it's gone. <laughs> so whenever we lift a plant or a group of plants out of a border, I come right back into the hole that's left behind uh, with our stockpile of compost. It's just a constant process of giving that microbial life down there something to eat. So Sure. Do you ever, Lucinda, do you ever just actually remove uh, all the soil and come back in with a new compost? Um, hopefully any bed that we're currently planting has had soil to begin with. But, for example, we have a brand new uh, stadium going in up here at the college. And, of course, there's planting beds around that. And we just spent, um, oh, part of an afternoon excavating all the soils out of one of the brand new beds because, uh, the quality of the soil that went in there was fine for filter, but not fine for growing plants. And you so, bet. Uh, yeah, sometimes uh, we make our own. And the guys that work here on the grounds crew are really good at squirreling away little pieces of topsoil that get moved around during uh, construction. Every, everybody needs piles of stuff around that you can use for later on, right? That's exactly, that's exactly right. And Good, good topsoil is not that easy to come by. No, it isn't. Yeah. So we build our own. And, and a lot of times the plantings that we do here on campus will have a component that we swap out every year, but the greater portion of the planting is 
permanent planting, new shrubs, new trees, things that are expected to have decades of life. Mm -hmm. So we need to get the soil right to begin with. Okay, I'm going to ask you again. Do you have a recipe for building your own topsoil? Well, yes. It depends on the poverty of the soil that we're starting with. Okay. <laughs> but typically what we do is if we can find some decent topsoil, something that is, if you think of um, where the roots in a lawn might grow, for example. This is how I help folks figure out how to do their flower beds at home. If you were to dig up a portion of lawn, that soil that's clinging to the roots of the grass, that's wonderful and organic and good topsoil because it has all those roots and dead roots in it from years and years. So if we have something like that, uh, then there's very little that you have to add, but you can never go wrong adding a little bit of the sifted compost or any kind or homemade rough compost. It doesn't really matter. Um, but typically, if you have a pile of uh, what is sold as topsoil, then I would put about three parts topsoil to one part compost. And 25% compost is a lot, but you need that organic jump to get things going. Sure, sure. That's, uh, and, that's mine. and in our soils, our organic matter is anywhere from less than a half percent to maybe one or two percent. And anything above that, you're really, really lucky around here. <laughs> Oh yeah, um, eight eight percent is fig is what we would figure would be a nice good garden soil. I think. Wow, eight percent. Wow. Yeah. Okay. And it takes it takes it takes seven to ten years of taking whatever soil you inherited when you bought your house and adding compost at probably an inch layer at a time and working it in every year. I'd say seven <coughs> to ten years. So um, what Diane and I have been doing since I've been uh, harvesting my seventh or eighth year of uh, compost pile um, uh, in the beds that we're creating is we'll, we'll establish a border and then we'll go out and we'll lay, uh, overlay compost on top of that because we don't have a lot of uh, wood chip mulch to help keep the weeds. We'll just lay the compost out and that will suppress the weeds. And then as we... And then as we go in and plant, uh, we are pulling that compost into the area where we're planting our shrubs and those types of things. And so that layer of compost will, will stay there. And then when we have access to wood chips, we'll come in and put that wood chip mulch over the top of it. And it seems to be working for us. I don't know if it'll work for other people, but that's that's just what we do. <laughs> well, I think, I think that's critical to get that layer of organic material down there because it it uh, makes the soil temperatures not rise and fall so rapidly. It holds the moisture in. It might suppress a weed or two, and it certainly, as it breaks down, is going to improve the soil. And the soils just are are starved of organic material in this region. So yeah. I think you've come up. I think you've come up with a really good way of doing it. Just get something organic down there on that that layer and get it going. Thanks, Lucinda. I, I appreciate the uh, confirmation. <laughs> you got to do it. You got to do it. So, Lucinda, do you see that you're starting to do a lot of cleanup around the campus, uh, deadheading, uh, getting rid of uh, some plants that look terrible or, or like your petunias, you pull them? Uh, are you starting to do that now that the days and the nights are starting to become a little cooler? 
Actually, what's happening here, and I think we're on a little bit different schedule than you might be, um, we're finding that we are starting to come into peak for the plants that bloom and seed out and color up this time of year. So it's not really uh, time for us to yank anything out. Uh, it's more time for us to keep the weeds out of what is starting to color up and be beautiful. And there's a handful of plants that I rely on to uh, to look good no matter what the season is so that if petunias are in bloom, everybody looks at those, but what do you do in November when the petunias aren't in bloom? Um, there's some plants that you can just absolutely rely on no matter whether we have a blizzard or it's windy or it's the dead of winter and nothing can color. Um, and those are some of the backbone of the plants that, that uh, I really enjoy having in the the garden. The American hazelnut is one of those. Are you familiar with that shrub? Uh, yes, I, I am. I don't know if Jerry is. We've uh, planted it in the past, and uh, I just don't have a lot of success with it. Um, but it might be something that I'm doing. Well, I think American hazelnut likes it likes it a little further uh, further east, maybe than some of the gardening that you're doing, and it okay. really likes highly organic soils and plenty, plenty, plenty of mulch. But it's a thicket-forming, wind-pollinated shrub, and heaven knows wind is not in short supply. <laughs> yeah, we don't have that problem either. <laughs> <laughs> I wouldn't think so. But um, uh, it's getting ready to color up, and the fall color on American hazelnut just blows my mind. It's my all-time favorite shrub. The leaves are yellow and coral and if it's planted in a place where the sunlight can backlight the shrub, it looks like somebody plugged that thing in. It's just absolutely huh. gorgeous. That's that's kind of nice. Oh, yeah. And yeah. then the squirrels get the hazelnuts about two days before I think they're ready to pick. So it, so it does actually uh, produce nuts then? They produce nuts if they have other hazelnuts around. That You know, it's that wind pollination thing. Okay. Um, I think we've I think we've tried hazelnuts in in this area on a variety of different levels, and they just don't seem to make it in Wyoming. Um, what is your elevation, Lucinda? Oh, let's see. I want to say forty six, forty seven. Okay. Interesting. I'll bet it has to do with your ability to compost and adjust your soils because <laughs> so, we're 42 and yeah 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 interesting not not such a difference in change in elevation right no our elevations are pretty similar and our our rph is eight one to eight three okay um the the two locations where the hazelnuts have done the best on campus are completely different from one another one is uh planted in in the shade of uh, a mature honey locust tree, so the honey locust is sucking the water away from them. Okay. Uh, the soils were somewhat amended, but they're not particularly fine. Um, and those plants are robust and uh, uh, beautifully, well, beautiful medium green, which is the kind of green you expect from them. I don't add supplemental sulfur to acidify the soil, particularly there. I just um, I don't fertilize them. I do mulch them, and they do get water from the lawn that's fairly close by. Do so you, that's the water they get. Do you think that the shading is a factor, that they may need a little shade or do better in, in a shaded environment? No, I don't think that because the, 
uh, a little way further down on the campus. Let me close my window here. One of the guys on the big lawnmowers just started up. There we go. Um, what the prettiest hazelnut on campus is in full sun. Um, it, it gets a drip irrigation. I don't fertilize it, but it's before we planted that shrub border, we made a berm about two feet tall and 12 feet wide of compost and good topsoil. Okay. So I'm thinking it's the the soil and the adequate water and and plenty of room. Then when I planted them out on the edge of campus where they were competing with the, the heat and winds coming off the fields, they didn't do so well. Hmm. So they need to be a little bit a little bit more protected, don't they? I'd say protected and with with the enriched soil, something with good organic content to it, and then adequate regular watering. I wouldn't call them a particularly thirsty plant, but they need need the same water you'd give a shade tree that you valued in your landscape. Okay. All right. So, Lucinda, just switching gears just a, a little bit, you mentioned the honey locust. Do you use the pods for any kind of a compost? Oh, those dang honey locusts. Squirrel pods. food. <laughs> <laughs> do you use them? Do you do you do you uh, compost them? Do you do you destroy them? What do you do? Well, what we do is um, we we have tons of honey locust trees on campus, and most of them are in areas where there are lawns because they have those little tiny leaves, so you get uh, nice filtered light on the lawn. Um, so they're a great park and lawn tree. Then. They drop those pods, and where they fall on the lawns, the guys vacuum them up with the the big riding mowers that have the uh, compartment on the back, and they go they go out to our solid waste facility where they turn them into compost. And you get them back later on as compost. Yeah. As compost. <laughs> That's a wonderful thing. They go away as a problem. Now they also fall on beds, and I have college students that work with me. Who consider that the most hated job they have? <laughs> <laughs> That's work study, right? <laughs> right. The work study students uh, pick them up by the five-gallon bucket because once those seeds rattle loose, I think every single one of them germinates, and they're, they're like a weed in our flower beds. So, yeah, yeah, yeah. That's we how we do it. We we have that here, but. Um, uh, at our location, we're generally feeding the squirrels, I think. And those little trees till right under. <laughs> <laughs> they just go right under that soil. They're beyond that uh, deadpan zone that you were talking about, right? <laughs> <laughs> That's excellent. Well, I would like to speak to that, that dead zone caused by rototilling. It is a real thing. That is not... That is not a, a guess as to does that actually happen. Yes, it does actually happen. And uh, and having a hard pan formed by slicing through at the same depth year after year after year is something that often can affect drainage. Mm-hmm. So, Lucinda, how are you weaning your husband from recreational rototilling? What What's your best well, tactic? The best one is to loan out the rototiller to somebody who doesn't. <laughs> I love it. <laughs> so, so uh, 
uh, Jerry, if oh, you if your rototiller disappears, <laughs> I've gifted my grand my grandson my rototillers, uh, but it's after I've passed. I said, you know, hey, you know, you can have these two rototillers, but you know, if if uh, Myrna is still alive, you got to come back and rototill our gardens. He goes, okay. <laughs> So thanks. <laughs> I don't know if that was like really thanks or if he is being a little sarcastic. More work for him. I'm guessing there might have been a little sarcastic. Maybe a little of both. <laughs> I think so. But you know what? I have to say that there's a time and place for a rototiller, and, and they are a wonderful labor saver when there's ground that needs to be cultivated. Um, it's the overtilling that that we're working on at our house. So yeah. We're no longer going for fluffy. We don't want fluffy anymore. <laughs> well, because you know you you are spinning up or, organisms that are chewing on organic matter, and you're 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 spinning a lot of that soil. Um, uh, over rototilling is a problem. Yeah. Yeah. Yep. 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 But they are a handy tool to have. I, so I have to backpedal a little bit here and say. Uh, they're not all bad. Just just using them off and maybe bad. Yeah, <laughs> maybe bad. <laughs> hey. You know what? Some, having a spading fork uh, is a wonderful thing that gets you past that that desire to break out the rototiller every minute. Yeah, you can you can get by if you have a broad fork or something like that. Um, yeah. I, I really hate to cut it short. I see that we're bumping up on our uh, time limit here. Lucinda, it's been a pleasure. I appreciate uh, having you uh, on the air and spending your time with us this morning. And uh, um, Jerry, good to see you. It's good to be back. And um, any any quick parting comments you'd like to make? One quick parting comment. Save the date, October 6th, Giant Pumpkin Contest at the fairgrounds. It's in conjunction with the Yahoo Days. Come on out, see what a large pumpkin really, really looks like. Okay, and Lucinda, again, thank you very much for being with us today. Oh, it's been lots of fun and good to learn a couple of tricks from you guys, too. Thank you. Okay, and and, uh, we'll be chatting again, I hope. You bet, I'd like to. All right, thank you very much. Uh, Everybody, we will uh, see you again next week. Well, not see you, we'll be chatting with you again next week. (laughs) Thanks a lot. Bye. Thanks so much for listening to the Lawn and Garden Podcast with UW Extension Specialist Jeff Edwards and Jerry Urshabek, presented by UW Extension. We'll see you next time.